Grab your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8, where we pick up 2 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to try to do chapters 8 and 9. They're short, shorter. (laughs) And with that, a special announcement about cell phones. (laughs) If you could all just double check and just put it to the off position, that would be awesome. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 8. We'll ask the Lord for his help. Now, Heavenly Father, we always ask for your Holy Spirit's help to understand these truths before us. Uh, This is the the God-breathed word given to our hearts to bring life and blessing. Holy Spirit, help us to understand. Open the eyes of our understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, things really all got started with Abraham, of course, the father of the Jewish people. And and concerning two things, really, God made a promise to this man. Uh, He said uh, he was going to be blessed with people, descendants. And he took Abraham out one evening and said, even though your wife cannot have children and you are too old, I'll look up in the night sky, and can you count all those stars? Well, you're going to have descendants who are biologically related to you, and God made good on that promise. The second promise was land, where all those people would actually end up living. In Genesis 15, the borders are measured out, and you'd be quite surprised, as the map on the screen will show you, that the actual borders given in the Bible are quite Uh, larger than what Israel occupied back in the day and even less now. But under David, really, they had the the most of the land. Uh, Certainly not that much, but uh, you can see right now uh, that the dimensions were were ginormous compared to what uh, they actually possessed. And, and, And thank you for that slide. But, you know, God delivered them out of Egypt carried them, and the Lord described it as, I carried you on wings of eagles, and he gave them an inheritance and a promise. He had been working with the occupants, the tenants there called the Canaanites, for 400 years, and he said, you know, after 400 years of working with them, getting them to, trying to get them to repent, and uh, that not happening, he brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, and he placed them in the promised land. And then he said something amazing. He said, now I want you to possess it. Here's your inheritance, and I want you to duke it out. I want you, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to provide the strength, and I'll, I'll guarantee the victory, but I need you to cooperate and to possess fully the thing that I've given you. It's yours by right, by God's right. I want you to fully possess it, subdue it, enjoy it. It's yours for the taking. I'm not going to just magically wave a magic wand and give it to you. I am putting you in the land. Now I want you to cooperate with me. And uh, God had intended so much, but uh, they settled for so little. And uh, they couldn't enjoy what was rightfully theirs through unbelief and cowardice and lack of confidence and rebellion and disobedience. They just didn't want to cooperate with the Lord. Uh, Along with a boatload of sniveling and whining and complaining, and the Jewish word for that is to kvetch, K-V-E-T-C-H. All right, try it out, kvetch. 
Yeah, I know. Doesn't it sound terrible? I know. That's why we shouldn't do it. But we do. Um, and, and, and so as a result, for 500 years in the promised land, up to now David's time, the Israelites couldn't enjoy the land and the inheritance that God had given them. They were occupied, they were attacked, they were harassed in their own land, just squeezed and constrained in their own land. By who? By, by, by the people they wouldn't dispossess. They wouldn't cooperate, and they had lots of excuses why. They're stronger than us, and, and, and it's dangerous. And, and this one is my favorite. It's too hard, you know. God's people for centuries that's their favorite line, why they can't possess the promise God has given them. It's too hard. And then he constantly says, is anything too hard for me? I'm with you. Stop kvetching and start obeying. Amen? So the spiritual application, of course, is huge for us. He's poured out his spirit into us, and he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he says in Colossians 3 and verse 5, put to death, therefore, uh, everything that belongs to your sinful nature, every evil thing that is lurking within you. Have zero tolerance for sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. And uh, the things we let remain are the very things that will bring us trouble, just like it's just a beautiful picture of Israel not possessing the land. Now, here in chapter 8, Things are changing because at the helm is a king after God's own heart. And his first order of business is to obey the Lord, to actually believe the Lord, and to start to dispossess and to push back and to enlarge the borders that God had given them. Nobody up until David's time was willing to do that. Saul was all about himself. He was too busy looking in the mirror and admiring what he was seeing uh, to care about what God's agenda was for God's people. And so David is really the first man on the scene who's going to say, hey, let's do this. God is with us. He's given us promises. This is our land, and we're bound to the Philistines? We're paying taxes to them? Shouldn't it be the other way around? They're occupying us? That, that's not right. And so David is going to do something about it. He's going to trust and obey God. He's going to step out, and God is going to be with him. So here in chapter 8, that's what we're going to see. Israel has been constrained and harassed on every side, but now David's on the throne. Time to take back what is rightfully ours, says David, uh, and it's time to trust and obey. And uh, instead of uh, sniveling, he's going to start swinging the sword. And 2 Samuel chapter 8 begins 1 through 6. So let's read it together. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Metheg, Amma, from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with the length of a cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought tribute, that's taxes, 
Um, verse 3, moreover, David fought Hadad Ezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, when he, <clears throat> when he went to restore uh, his control along the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadad Ezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And so uh, let's pause there. And if you're taking notes, number one, fighting God's battles. So the Christian life, as I've been talking about, whether we're talking about the people of God under the old covenant or promise or the spirit-filled believers in the new promise, us today, uh, walking with God is not for the faint of heart. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12 says, fight the good fight of faith. Paul speaking to younger Timothy and really throughout the New Testament, as we all pretty much know, the Christian life is described as a fight, as warfare. We're called uh, soldiers and we are exhorted to always be strong and brave and courageous and to fight constantly over and over and over again on three playing fields. And so in this chapter, we're going to see uh, the north, south, and the east, and the west are all trouble for Israel, just like north, south, east, west, and inside and outside and above and below is trouble for the born-again believer. Uh, really, you know, for us, the world is a problem. Uh, Romans chapter 12 says, don't let the world in its depraved thinking, try to squeeze you into its mold. First John chapter two says, don't love the world. Because if you love the world in the sense of what's in the world, the pride of life, the lust, the desires, the perverseness of the world engine that fuels rebellion to God. If you love that kind of thing, the love of God is, is far from you. And uh, so we have a battle all the time because the world is always around us. Uh, then the next front is, of course, the, what is called the flesh or our human sinful nature. Galatians chapter 5, the sinful nature wages war against the Holy Spirit within us. And, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, it must be put to death. So constantly, every cell in your body always wants to commit mutiny with the Lord. Every cell outside the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is against doing God's will. Every cell is programmed in Adam to rebel because Adam and Eve rebelled and became sinners and transgressors. And they passed that genetic DNA, spiritually speaking, onto you and I. And we struggle with that even with, as Christians with the Holy Spirit on board. And then, of course, there's spiritual warfare. Finally, brothers, be strong in the Lord. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. So north, south, east, and west, you just can't get around the fact that God calls the born-again Christian to a fight. And it doesn't surprise me, as I've mentioned several times, that heading the list of those who perish 
in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. There's a little list of those who are going on the southbound train for, for eternity. And here's the head of the list, as I've often said to you, a quoted to you, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur, which is the second death. But heading the list, cowardly. They don't want to fight. They're afraid of, of denying self. They're afraid of being led by the Lord. Uh, their fears of the Lord are totally unfounded. But they are driven by fear, and they do not wish to uh, say no to themselves or no to their sin. They're afraid. They're afraid. They're afraid. They're cowards. And so uh, that doesn't surprise me because we're called to fight. And those, the better fighters uh, among us are the more mature and the closer to God. So we see in the opening verses, first of all, verse 1, to the west, uh, Israel's hemmed in by the Philistines. You know, the Philistines didn't come up from the promised land area. They came from Greece and they came over to the and invaded from the west. Relentless attacks and totally always subjugating uh, the Israelis. And uh, now they're subdued. Uh, they're not eradicated, but never again will you hear them as a national security threat after this chapter. Because David is with the Lord. David is bent on, we are taking the land. Israel's going to be who Israel's supposed to be under my watch. And so he's sold out, and God's willing, and he pushes, beats back the Philistines. And then that's the West. Check. Now we've got the East. Another foe, the foreign threat that's been a threat to Israel for 500 years, the Moabites. And now, we had some sweet dealings with the Moabites earlier when David was on the run from Saul. You'll remember that he brought his mom and dad to the king of Moab. And, and there was a little treaty there, but scholars say that that didn't go very well, that they may have killed David's parents. And so it kind of makes sense in some other writings and some other things, uh, knowledge, that, that that treaty was violated. And so we end up with David not killing them all, but sparing a third of them. God showing mercy through David. So there goes the east. The east is taken care of. And how about the north from verse 3 and following? The Syrians are now defeated. The horses are disabled. The horses are considered uh, getaway vehicles. And so uh, kings were, not, were commanded not to amass to themselves these horses. So David is thinking, I, I can't care for them out here. And I'm not supposed to even have a whole bunch of horses anyway. And so and they're the getaway vehicles for the bad guys. And so he's going to uh, disable them. Uh, sad to say. Now, scholars wonder, maybe it's these kinds of ex excesses that gave uh, David the kind of reputation that God didn't want associated with his temple. Now, you'll remember last chapter that David was overwhelmed with God's goodness. He desires to build a permanent dwelling for the Ark of the Covenant and a, a central place of worship. So he wants to build this fabulous, ginormous temple. And you'll remember that God said, you know what? You're, you're really not the one to do it. And God doesn't tell him why until later. 
So in 1 Chronicles chapter uh, 22, I'll read it to you. We find out why God didn't want David to actually build the temple. He had Solomon, his son, do it. Uh, Then he called for his son, David, now at the end of his life, calls for Solomon and charged him to build a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord. But this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son and he will be a man of peace and rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon. And I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one to build a house for my name. So God knows that people make associations between who they are and what they do. They have reputations. So if you would say, hey, I'm going to David's temple. You might think chaos, strife, blood, uh, hamstrung horses, or holding a Goliath's head by his hair, not attached to a body. And uh, you may think of these things. Uh, most of them were God-ordained. But there are a lot of excesses and missteps with blood and violence with David. Uriah's blood. Bathsheba's faithful, devoted husband who died as a result of David's murder. So if you said Solomon's temple, you might think, wow, wisdom, peace, and rest. So the Lord is saying something there, how important reputation is. And you know what? It wasn't about the tabernacle. It wasn't about the, the, the temple of the Lord. It was about our bodies, Because eventually, that was just a foreshadowing, a prophetic foreshadowing of what God had in mind all the time. It's not a house made with brick and mortar, but a house of a human being. Because he comes in to us when we accept Christ, and we become his temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who dwells within you. So I ask you tonight, how, how are you with your name? Let's, uh, let's say, sorry if your name is John, but we always go to John because, and you're probably used to it, John. Uh, John's temple. Is that a good mix for you and the Christ who dwells within you? Because God's concerned about reputation. He doesn't want David's name associated with the temple. He wants Solomon's peace and rest and so how about we'll just, put, just put your name there and just see if, uh, if what John says, John just blows my mind, chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, whoever claims to live in Christ must walk as Jesus did. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20, 20, it says, we are Christ's ambassadors. So when somebody hears that we are talking about God and associate us with God and he's where the temple, I'm just wondering, is the reputation right? Does your life reflect the same moral qualities 
even reaching toward that as Christ. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Um, even the qualification for a leader, a Christian leader, First Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, one requirement says this, he must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into the disgrace and into the devil's trap. Our reputation. Pastor Adam has to talk frequently to young people on social media because their reputation is not matching the profession of their faith. And it's on display for the whole world. So you're saying John's temple and LOL, whatever. Thumbs up to this, thumbs down to that. Watch your reputation because God thinks it's rather important. We need to reflect our Savior. So, so summing this all up, the West, the East, the North, and the South, we didn't get to the South yet, but verses 12 through 14, um, the, so the threats within are subdued, the threats without are pushed back, the borders are expanded to the Euphrates, and by the way, when the Lord comes back, just know this, that the borders go all the way to where they were supposed to be the first time. And, and probably a little bit more. Uh, and so Israel's becoming who God made her to be. Let's continue seven till the end of the chapter. Now David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadad Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem from Teba. The type is getting smaller and smaller, and I'm standing on my tippy toes to give me a little extra uh, room to be able to see. And another place uh, that belonged to Hadad Ezer. It doesn't matter. It's a town, all right? It's a town, some town over there. Uh, King David took a great quantity, oh dear Lord, of bronze when Tao king of Hamath heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, uh, he sent his sons Joram to King David to greet him and con congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with Tao. Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and the gold from all the nations he had subdued. Uh, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadad Ezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Saul. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And now here's a list of uh, David's cabinet. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, uh, was recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. Sariah was secretary. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, 
was over the Carathites and the Pelathites. And David's sons were royal advisors. And thank you, Jesus, for not listing all of their names here. <laughs> now, if you're looking for baby names, there you go. There's a whole beautiful list. I, I highly recommend Benaniah because it sounds like Benihaha, Hana, Hana, <laughs> you know, where there's a lot of good food. Moving on. <clears throat> All right, so we saw fighting God's battles, and now number two, advancing God's causes. And now, a, a few good things to notice here. Now, through conquest of the enemies and expanding the borders, dedicating the plunder, there are a lot of riches involved here and a lot of taxation. So there's a great amount of wealth that's coming in. And now, first, David is making the best of God telling him no. Uh, God told him, no, you can't build a temple. And so instead of whining about it and pouting and saying, fine, then I'm, I'm not going to be involved at all. If he can't build a temple for the Lord, he could make it easier for his predecessor who will. So after David's told, no, you can't build the temple, here's what happens. Uh, I'm reading from the same passage in 1 Chronicles 22. So listen, so David gave orders to call together the foreigners living in Israel. He assigned them the task of preparing finished stone for the building of the temple of God. He's, told, he's been told, no, you're not building it. So before he dies, he says, okay, let's just prepare I'm not actually building it. I just want to help you guys for when I'm gone, uh, it'll be easier for you. David provided large amounts of iron for the nails that would be needed for the doors in the gates and for the clamps. And he gave more bronze than could be weighed. He also provided innumerable cedar logs for the men of Tyre and Sidon who brought vast amounts of cedar to David. David said, my son Solomon is still young and inexperienced. And since the temple to be built for the Lord must be magnificent in structure, famous and glorious throughout the world, I will begin making preparations for it now. So David collected vast amounts of building materials and wealth before his death. So he says, okay, so I can't be in the lead position. I can't be up front. I'm not going to get credit for this, but who cares? Who cares if my name is even associated? If I see my, you know, a little footnote, and by the way, you know, there's my name. He doesn't care. He cares about the cause of God and however it gets accomplished. And so, yeah, he really wanted to be up front leading the way. But the Lord said, no, actually, I got somebody else in mind. So he says, help me to make him successful. Help me to get it ready for whoever you want, because this isn't about me. Uh, sad to say, some would say, if I can't be out front and have a little, you know, headliner about me, then count me out. You know, but David says, I have a dream for God's work. I don't need to be listed in the credits. It's the cause that matters. I don't care about the credit. And so uh, we read and see the fruit of David's lab labors later. Uh, but the temple was indeed very awesome. It was like one of the seven wonders of the world, that, that place. I mean, I got a little, little 
narration here from Second Chronicles. Uh, the king Solomon made a great throne inlaid with ivory and overlaid with pure gold. The throne had six steps and a footstep of gold, footstool rather of gold. <clears throat> On both sides of the seats were armrests with the lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's day. Why? Because David was working for decades like a madman, pooling all of the wealth and getting it ready so that the temple could be built. So David spent several decades setting Solomon up for success. You know, we can't all do our jobs forever. We can't all be in our positions forever. We need to be entrusting um, and raising up people around us. Uh, it's not, you know, Saul had no time for this because somebody might actually likes, like someone better than Saul. So Saul couldn't have that because Saul was a one-man show, uh, but not David. David was all about making God's kingdom work, and who cares who, who sees who and who gets the glory. Notice also here, the king of Hamath sends gifts. So I like what one writer said, not every pagan nation surrounding Israel was hostile to Israel or to their God. And David didn't treat them as if they were hostile. Uh, we make a mistake, he writes, if we treat every unbeliever as an openly hostile enemy of the Lord. So one, one guy sees David and uh, God being God blessing David and expanding Israel and blessing Israel. And one border king uh, sends gifts and says, wow. Way to go, congratulations. And David respects it and receives it and doesn't make war with him. Uh, <clears throat> the last thought that I see here, David's got the whole package. He can fight on the battlefield, but he knows how to manage the affairs of a growing nation. And uh, verse 15 says he governs with justice and righteousness for everybody. He's a smart man. He appoints wise and skilled assistants. Part of David's success is his ability to assemble, train, and empower and maintain such a team. And as I said before, just Saul has no room for anybody raising anybody else up because they might outshine him. And um, so it's summing up. Israel has got some breathing room. The enemies are pushed back. Uh, there's safety and security. Um, there's a smart, good man on the throne, and he's reigning in goodness and righteousness. And uh, it's awesome. He's only concerned with doing what's good for the people. He can't be bribed. Justice is flowing. It's a beautiful time. And guess what? It's a, it's a prophetic picture. Israel's fully possessed her promises, and there's a man on the throne who's reigning. And that is a picture, of course, of what Isaiah promised us. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders. And it says, and, his, and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David. This is a picture, because David will be great-great-grandfather times 28. 
of, on the, the human side of our Lord, uh, genetically related to Jesus who will reign forever on the throne. So now chapter 9 is a short, wonderful, beautiful story. I'm going to read it. We'll make a couple uh, insights there. But here's an example of how this guy is operating as king. He's really a different kind of king. He's a lot like uh, King Jesus who will, who will be called his son in one regard. So here's the story, um, and then we'll make some comments. David asked, is there anyone still left in the household of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant? He replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Makir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Lodabar means nowhere, place of nowhere. It means no man's land. So you'll be getting a picture here. Hopefully you can see the gospel here. So King David had him, the, the steward of Saul's, the late King Saul's uh, estate, had him brought from Lodabar, Lodabar from the house of Makir, son of Amiel. I misspoke there. This is actually the grandson of Saul being brought in. His name, Mephibosheth. So when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now, by the way, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord, the king commands his servant to do. Mm -hmm. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants now of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. Wow, well, here's the gospel. We saw God, we saw fighting God's battle at battles and advancing God's cause. And now David is a vessel of God's grace. Kindness is the theme of this chapter. It's in verse 1, 3, and 7. And of course, it's a, it's a greater picture of the gospel. Now notice in chapter 7, David asks, what can I do for God? And now here he's saying, what can I do for others? 
the two loves are interfaced with each other. We love God, we love others. David doesn't take his cues from the world. So normally when the throne changes hands from one house, you know, we use the word house here like the British do, the house of Windsor. It just means the dynasty or the family name of. So normally when one throne goes from one house to another, uh, the new house is expected to wipe out the old dynasty and all the heirs must die for national security. Because who knows, in five, ten years, whatever, there's, a, there's an heir to the old king's uh, throne. And so there can be a big uh, civil war and all of that. So instead of seeking out Saul's heirs to kill them, David seeks them out to bless them. Because he's like the Lord in this way. Instead of seeking revenge he, on his enemies, he's seeking to show love to his enemies. Now that should sound familiar. Now, David is just overwhelmed with God's wonderful grace to him. And when that happens in your heart, you need an outlet. You need an outlet. And he's looking for an outlet. And he remembers his friend, Jonathan, who loved him before he was king. When it was uncool to love David, when it was uncomfortable and could cost you your life, he was his best friend. He was Saul's son, Jonathan. He knew his father was crazy. And he stood with David. He knew that God's promise was with David. And with respect, he stood with David. You know, and David's probably realizing what a friend he had in Jonathan. And you don't always uh, realize that until it's not there anymore. So here's this memory going around in his mind. And now he remembers he also promised to King Saul, David did, that he'd watch out over his uh, future Lineage, He said, I swear, I'll watch out, out over your sons and their sons. And uh, so now he's thinking, you know, what can I do? I wonder if anybody's still alive over there. And so uh, here comes this random act of kindness um, because of his, his late best friend, Jonathan. Uh, so the search begins with a guy named Ziba. And Ziba is the steward of King Saul's uh, estate. And so where to begin the search? Well, call in the steward of the estate. So King, I'm going to paraphrase this. King David says to Ziba, you Ziba? And he says, at your service. And so now see if you can see the gospel as I tell the story. Because you're in the story. And you're, and you're not very good on your feet. So that's a clue who you are. All right? Now, here's what he says. Look. King David says, I'm in the mood to do something crazy wonderful for anyone related to Saul. You know, the guy who was obsessed with killing me. I want to show them the wonderful kindness of God just like I received it from God. Would you happen to know if there's anyone left directly related to Saul? Actually, Ziba says, Jonathan had a little boy who survived. He's lame in both his feet. He's pretty useless dude. He lives out in no man's land, powerless, weak, lame. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 4 tells us how Jonathan's boy got to be crippled. When news came to Saul's palace that Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle, the nanny for Mephibosheth, who was five years old at the time, uh, 
in the panic and rightfully panicked because she knows he's there. They're going to try to kill him. So she picks him up and in the panic drops Mephibosheth and he sustained the permanent injury and he became lame. That's in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 4. Now he's 21 and apparently married and he has his own little child. All right? So here's the conversation. David orders his assistants, bring Jonathan's, Jonathan, Jonathan has a boy. Bring that man to me. So they bring him in, awkward as it probably was. Mephibosheth bows to the king. David says, Mephibosheth, don't be afraid of anything. I love your father and your father loved me. We were best friends, me and your father. I'm going to take good care of you. All the land that used to belong to your grandfather Saul is now yours. You're rich, buddy. And not only that, I'd like to have dinner with you every night here with me in the palace at the king's table, seated next to princes, generals, and dignitaries. Mephibosheth prostrates himself before David and says, why are you interested in a deadbeat loser, lame loser like me? I'm like a flea on the body of a dead dog. I just added the flea in just for, you know, just for make it a little bit more useless. David ignores him and, and calls Ziba in. And, and I just want to see this on, on the screen. I want to see Ziba's face. When, when David says, I've given the entire estate to Mephibosheth, and you and your household are going to serve him. He gets it all. He's now in charge. You know the guy who's lame in both feet, the useless guy? Yeah, who drags himself around the dirt floor all the time? That's him. He's the boss now. And you, get, and you see Ziba. Yes, sir. Yeah, right. I don't think so. And later in 2 Samuel, we find out that he wasn't very happy in this moment. But he sure talks like he is. Well, whatever your servant wants, of course, will make him lord and servant. You know. So Ziba becomes Mephibosheth's servant along with all Ziba's large household. And Mephibosheth and his uh, little family moved to Jerusalem because he's a regular guest at the king's table. And did we mention he was completely lame in both his feet? Well, of course, that's the tagline because it really doesn't matter. Nothing's changed. He's still lame. What's, what's changed is the king has shown this weak, poor, lame man the grace and elevates him from nowhere and nothing and lame and poverty and abject dejection to the king's table. He just really adopts him, and you could really see the analogy here. Number one, we begin dead in our sin. We are sinners. We are undeserving enemies of the king by birth because we belong to Adam. Adam became a rebel, and so are we. Powerless, lame, going nowhere, without God, without hope, and then enter two. God's kindness, 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. And so the king comes looking. The king is pursuing. The king is looking. God's kindness leads us to repentance. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Luke 19 and verse 10. 
The Son of God came to seek and save the lost. And so we see what's happening here. We're Mephibosheth, and David is Lord, showing us kindness, undeserved. You know, a lot of people say, you know, I don't even know how I ended up at church. I don't even know how I, I ended up receiving the gospel. It just happened out of nowhere. It's because the king was, was seeking Mephibosheth. And, uh, and here, number three, a kindness for the sake of another. It's not anything Mephibosheth has earned. It's because for the sake of the kindness uh, felt for Jesus that God uh, lavishes his love and mercy upon us. We're lame, we're doomed, we're powerless, uh, we're former enemies. We have nothing to offer but big fat need. And we have this king who says, perfect. It's exactly who I'm looking for. That's the kind of person I want to show complete and utter kindness to in grace. And for the sake of Jesus and Jesus alone, the one who we believe in, we are adopted and made co-heirs, no longer estranged. We're brought to the table. It's like Luke 22 and verse 30. Jesus tells his, these fishermen, crude, uneducated men who the world despised. The religious establishment just hated these guys. And he turns to them and says, you will be eating in the kingdom of God at my table. Revelation chapter 3, to all Christians and those who overcome, born of the Spirit of God, will sit with me on my throne. He doesn't stop at the king's table with us. He elevates all of us Mephibosheths to the table, to the throne. And why? Not for our sakes, but for the sake of someone God really cared about, his only son. And, and what a joy. You know, I just imagine, you know how much David loved Jonathan and Jonathan loved David. And in comes Mephibosheth. And maybe Mephibosheth just kind of held his head like Jonathan or he had a look or a just jawline or something. And he said, oh, oh man, I see Jonathan in you. And I, I, I suppose that's what's saying, and you're going to eat at my table and you're going to get all the land because he sees Jonathan in him. When the father sees a little bit of Jesus, oh man, you remind when you said that and did that, man, that just so reminded me of Jesus, my son. The way you respond, the way you took that, the way you died to yourself, that was so Christ-like. I think that's what really wows the father. Let me just sum it up to you this way. David's grace to Mephibosheth is a wonderful picture of God's grace to us. And uh, here's a list of how we're like that. We are hiding poor, weak, and lame and fearful before our king comes to us. We are separated from our king because we're related to our rebellious human ancestors. We also like Mephibosheth, are separated from our king because of our deliberate actions. We're separated. We separated ourselves from the king because we didn't know him or his love for us. And our king sought us out before we sought him. The king's kindness is extended to us for the sake of another. The king's kindness is based on covenant. We must receive the king's kindness in humility. The king returns to us what we lost, 
in hiding from him. The king returns to us more than what we had lost in hiding from him. And we have the privilege of provision at the king's table. We are received as sons at the king's table with access to the king and fellowship with the king. We receive servants from the king, the angels who minister to those who inherit salvation, as Hebrews says. And the king finally, uh, the king's honor does not immediately take away all of our weakness and lameness, but it gives us a favor and a standing that overcomes its sting and changes the way we think about our lameness. Because our lameness is a good thing. Because his power is made perfect. And Pastor David Guzik points out, he says, don't forget this, that God expects now when Mephibosheth is elevated, that we see ourselves in Mephibosheth, but that we also see ourselves in David. That we should seek out our enemies and seek to bless them. We should look for the poor, the weak, the lame, and the hidden to bless them. We should bless others when they don't deserve it and bless them more than they deserve. We should bless others for the sake of someone else, the Lord, Jesus. And we must show the kindness of God to others. So, you know, we often stop when we get to the king's table and the throne that we're going to share and hallelujah. Look how much God loves us. He took us, you know, as Ephesians says, once you were dead in your sins because of your disobedience, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world obeying the devil. All of us used to live that way. But God, rich in mercy, he loved us so much that even when we were dead dogs uh, because of our sins, he gave us life and raised us with Christ from the dead and seated us in heavenly realms because we're united to Christ Jesus. It's a gift of God and through his grace only. We just stop there and we forget. Now it's our turn to be spiritually mature and to look for people who persecuted us, gave us a hard time and respond in love, the opposite spirit to be merciful and kind and giving and generous, just like God is. We've been forgiven a lifetime of sins. We need to be that gracious with others toward us, to be not only see ourselves in Mephibosheth, but also to see our obligation in David, having been elevated to that kind of status. Now let us show that we get it and we respond Likewise, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this marvelous story that just, just boggles our minds that you could, knowing who you are, majestic God, King of Kings, and you look down and you see us, Mephibosheths, and you say, you know what? I'm just going to pour out my mercy, grace, and love upon you, make you guys rich, crazy rich, and you sit upon my throne with me. Just a wonderful privilege, God, to, to be recipients of your great grace. Help us to understand that and let, walk worthy to respond in how we treat others that show that we really get it, how much we've been given and blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.